Well, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll start in verse 43. Mark 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. We've been going through the book of Mark for quite a while now, and what we've been saying is that throughout this gospel, what Jesus has been very concerned to do for us is to redefine what is the good life, what it is that makes for ultimate happiness. Now, we've seen lots of very applicable ways in which Jesus has taught us to do this. Uh, he's taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he says to love your neighbor as yourself means that you will have more happiness than if you were just to love yourself. He has taught us to pray for our daily bread and for the forgiveness of sins. But today, we're going to see that at the heart of the good life of the kingdom of God Jesus receives a condemnation that does not belong to him. Now, let me add that at the end of this sermon, you won't have three tips to make your life better or five ways to encourage your kids 
or a new method for prayer. This passage is not actually um, applicable in that way. The Gospels, let me, one of the fundamental um, interpretive keys to the Gospels is that they are for us, but they are not about us. Okay? The Gospels are for us, but they're not about us. Let me try to explain what I mean. Uh, when you read the epistles of Paul, for example, those are for us and about us. The commands Paul gives are applicable to all Christians in all times and in every place. He says, pray without ceasing. He says, come to the Lord's table. But the Gospels and Acts, for that matter, are for us, but not about us. Which is to say that we are for sure edified by them, but you have to take some extra interpretive steps to apply what you find there. When we read about Jesus being crucified, the application surely is not be like Jesus. Because only Jesus can die as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. So that's what I mean when I say the stories in the Gospels are for us, but they're not about us. Now, taking all this time to establish that for the following reason. This morning, we're considering the abandonment and the condemnation of Jesus. And the only thing that we have to do as we consider this together is to look on in breathless astonishment at Jesus who does the work for his people. If you want an application, then let it be awe. If you want an application, let it be wonder. So, all that said, here's what we're going to see in this story today. Number one, in Christ's condemnation, the scriptures are fulfilled. Number two, in Christ's condemnation, he becomes the servant of his enemies. And number three, in Christ's condemnation, he became a participant in our own suffering. So number one, the scriptures are fulfilled. Number two, becomes the servant of his enemies. And number three, he is a participant in our own suffering. So number one, in the condemnation of Christ, we see the scriptures are fulfilled. And let's start with verse 43 and read through verse 50. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. Obviously, they were expecting some sort of armed resistance. They're from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one that I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber, as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled fulfilled. Now, the most immediate fulfillment of the scriptures that's occurring in this little section right here is the abandonment of Jesus by his disciples. If you'll remember, earlier in this very evening where this takes place, 
he quoted to them a passage from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And that verse goes like this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Jesus is not surprised at their cowardice. Jesus is not surprised that they flee from trouble. The only ones who are going to be surprised at their abandonment is the disciples themselves. Because if you remember, only a few years, or a few hours earlier, they're actually, when Jesus quotes this passage to them, they contradict him. They say, never. We will never abandon you. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. It is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now, that's the immediate context of the fulfillment of the scriptures. But Jesus' magnificent pronouncement, let the scriptures be fulfilled, refers not just to one obscure verse in Zechariah, it refers to all the scriptures. Let me, let me try to show you what I mean. Uh, at the end of Acts, if you've ever read it, in Acts chapter 28, we have Paul, the apostle, under house arrest at Rome. And he's there, it says, for two whole years. Now, what is he doing for two whole years under house arrest? Well, if you know the apostle Paul, you know what he was doing. He was preaching night and day. And then if we ask the question, what is he preaching? Well, then Luke tells us in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came with him, came to him, excuse me, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and I wish we could talk about that section, but we, I need to focus on the next part, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, so Paul is preaching for two years, day and night, from the scriptures. Now first... What is the content of Paul's preaching? He tells us here. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ from the scriptures. But second, what scriptures is he talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament, as Paul is preaching during this time, has not yet been written. So for two whole years, Paul preaches night and day from the Old Testament about Jesus, and that might be a puzzle to you. Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, but apparently Paul would beg to differ. Let me show you something else. You remember in Luke's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, he finds himself walking down a road towards the town of Emmaus, and for whatever reason, they cannot recognize him. They don't know it's Jesus. And so as they're walking, they are crestfallen, their hearts are broken, their Lord has just been crucified, and Jesus is listening, and he's taking it all in. And then, without sympathy at all for their sorrow, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, we'll start in 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And, here it is, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, don't miss that. 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Not some of the scriptures, not a good amount of the scriptures, not most of the scriptures. He interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what scriptures is he talking about? Again, New Testament, not yet written. I don't know how long it took him to do this, but he went through all the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Old Testament, and showed his disciples how they referred to him. And, do, and as a parenthetical remark, like I love how, I, I don't love it because I would have been the, the butt of this, but how little sympathy he has for them. He says, you didn't see it? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that was written about me in the Old Testament. Apparently to Jesus, that the Old Testament scriptures testified to him is the most obvious thing in the world. So let that settle for a minute. I mean, if I asked you what the Ten Commandments about, are about, you might be tempted to say, oh, well, those are you know, guidelines for moral living. But if you had been there on that road to Emmaus, Jesus would have opened that passage and said, that's about me. If I asked you what the story of David and Goliath is about, you might say, oh, you know, trust in God and go out and slay your giants. But if Jesus opened that up to us, he would say, that's about me. If I asked you what the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was about, you might be tempted to say, oh, that's about trusting God with the most precious things in your life. But that's not how Jesus reads it. He opens it and he says, that story is about me. I mean, <laughs> don't you realize that creation is about Jesus because he was the master workman at the Father's side? Don't you realize that the creation of Adam as the representative for all humanity was only a preparation for the second Adam who would also be a faithful representative for all humanity? And don't you see that when God promised to bless all nations through Abraham's seed, he was referring to the blessing of all nations in Jesus don't you see that the Ten Commandments are not just moral guidelines, but a real exposition of the character of Jesus Christ himself? He's the one who never commits idolatry. He's the one who never lies. He's the one who never steals. He's the one who never covets. And don't you see that on the night that the Israelites sheltered themselves under the shed blood of the Passover lamb so that they could find protection from the angel of death, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb under whose blood we are all sheltered? Yes. You can go further. You see that the high priest, if, if you had been there on the Day of Atonement, the high priest with the blood of goats dripping from his hands, and if you were to hear him pronouncing that the blood of this vicarious sacrifice atones for the sins of the congregation, if you can see that, then you can see the true and final sacrifice for sins in Jesus Christ. And can't you see that Jesus is the true priest, the one who bears the presence of God to his people? Can't you see that Jesus is the true temple, the place where heaven and earth meet and the place where we go to offer our worship can't you see that Jesus is the true king coming in the line of David, a man after God's own heart? And do you not see that Jesus is his people's true return from exile? That night in the garden, on the occasion of his betrayal, 
Jesus utters those momentous words. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, I have a friend who's fond of saying this. If you go all the way back and stand at the edge of time and strain your ear, you will hear these words. The Christ will suffer. That night in the garden, Jesus' friends abandoned him with only the slightest provocation. That night in the garden, Judas betrayed him with a kiss. That night in the garden, an armed guard laid hold of Jesus as if he were a criminal. But he is not taken by surprise. There is no one more in control of this moment than Jesus. He knows his scriptures. He knows who he is. The Christ will suffer, and his conviction is plain. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, secondly, in Christ's condemnation, he serves his enemies. Let's go to verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now this is almost beyond belief. We're told that the council assembled against Christ and that it was made up of the following people, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. This is a group of men who knew their scriptures backwards and forwards. And they were well aware of the rules that were required, that they were required to keep in condemning a man because they were laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And the rule was this. It was simple. Two or three witnesses have to agree. But as fastidious as they were about the law, <laughs> their, their hearts are burning with malice. If you remember back to the beginning of Mark 14, they already had plans for this trial. Mark 14 chapter 1, excuse me, 14 verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. The council has already decided on the death penalty, and here they're trying to find a charge to justify it. 
It's a hearing in search of a charge. And the verdict is already decided. Now, this, of course, is an incredible miscarriage of justice. And despite their unflinching adherence to the Deuteronomy witness law, they find themselves more and more frustrated because they can't carry out their plans unless two people agree. And they can't find two people to agree. And in their increasingly frustrated minds, they must be saying something like, we must get rid of this man. He he must be put to death. We have to find witnesses to agree. And where are they? And Jesus himself, if you noticed, adds to their frustration because he won't answer a word. He stays silent. They even quote something he said about the destruction of the temple. And if he would confess to that in front of them all, they could kill him. And they would have all the witnesses they need because everybody heard him say it. But Jesus remains as silent as a lamb before the slaughter. But then something astonishing happens. If you remember, Jesus taught in Mark 10 that he is among us as one who serves His whole vocation as God's son in his earthly life is not to lord his power and authority over human beings, but to serve them. And here we see the great heights of his vocation as the servant of God. The chief priest asks him directly, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus responds with these magnificent words in verse 62. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, there's so much to say about that that I can't, don't have time for. I just want to focus on one thing. When the high priest hears this, he tears his clothes, they grind their teeth at him, and they pronounce blasphemy. And because Jesus said it in the midst of the whole council, they all became witnesses of his confession. And they had all that they needed, according to Deuteronomy, to put him to death. Now stop for a moment and consider this. All they wanted to carry out their wicked plan was a means by which to make him suffer. And they couldn't find one, no matter how hard they tried. There's lots of very smart, well-educated, very powerful people in the room, and they can't carry out their plan against this nobody Galilean preacher. And so Jesus humbled himself and gave them what they needed to inflict pain, disgrace, and death upon him. And later, when the soldiers laid him upon the cross and began the grisly work of nailing his hands and his feet to it, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And so we see in this episode that in the condemnation of Christ, he lowered himself so far that he even served his enemies. Third, in Christ's condemnation, he became a participant in our suffering. 
verse 64. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. After they condemn him, the suffering begins. They insult him by spitting upon him. They deride his role as prophet by covering his face and punching it and saying, prophesy, who hit you? We know from other gospels that they pulled the beard out of his face. Soon, in a few verses, he's going to be flogged by Pontius Pilate. And they will place upon his shoulders a purple robe and they will drive into his brow a crown of thorns. They'll bow down in mockery to this brutally deformed king. He will be made to carry his cross to the place of execution. He will suffer thirst. He will suffer hunger. He will suffer excruciating pain. And all of this is a prelude to the asphyxiation of hanging upon a cross to die. Now, have you ever wondered, like I have, why did Christ have to suffer. The atonement for sins required the death of a substitute, but not its suffering, not its humiliation. I mean, if you had been present on the day of atonement, during the days of the temple, you would have seen the priests cutting the throats of the sacrificial animals to give them a a quick and relatively painless death. They didn't tie the animals up and beat it and tear its flesh and get it ready for death. So if, if death is all that's required for atonement, why all this suffering? Was it really necessary for Christ to suffer and die? And the answer is yes. And if you want to know why, we need to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's true that Jesus died to fulfill the scriptures. But there is so much more to his suffering than that. When they... When they struck him on the face, they were beating into him our own suffering. 
when they mocked and insulted him. They hurled at him our own sorrows when they whipped his body. They were driving into his own body every sickness, every disease, every wound, every indignity that we have ever suffered or ever will suffer. And when we gaze upon the horror of the mangled body of Christ, we see all of our suffering concentrated into the Lord of glory himself. One of the most deeply distressing puzzles of our lives is this. If God is good, then why does he permit such ravaging pain in the human race? And Jesus did not see fit to solve that puzzle for us with a teaching. Instead, he participated in our suffering. He bore our sorrows. He allowed our chastisement to be ground into his flesh. It is as if Jesus said, I have not come to explain your suffering, but I will suffer with you. And the glorious teaching of Isaiah is this, that by his wounds we are healed. Because Jesus suffered in condemnation, we can be sure that no portion of our suffering is God's revenge upon our sin. Our suffering serves some other purpose, but whatever it is, it cannot be punishment for sin. Jesus gathered up all that condemnation in his own body, in himself, and it was nailed to the tree. And we are perpetually tempted to think that we will be rescued from our own suffering and sorrow in this world. And in some cases, we tragically believe that if only we have faith enough, if only we claim the right words and outcomes, then God will come to the rescue. But here's where this story corrects us. Was there ever a man more faithful than Jesus? Was there ever a man whose words held more power than his? Was there ever a man who could have called upon the Father and found a more willing ear, and yet he suffered without rescue? He suffered all the way to his death. And you only have to talk to a few people to realize that God does not always save his people from suffering and death in this life. But there's one more thing to say. Suffering is not the last word for God's people. Three days after, three days after, Christ was laid in his grave. He rose to life. Never to suffer again. Never to die again. In accordance with with the scriptures. And one day, the trumpet will sound, and he shall return on the clouds, not in humility, but in great power and glory. And all of us who have suffered with him in this life will be raised again, never to suffer, never to die. And when we're seated at his table in his kingdom, it seems to me that 
that a great hush will come over the congregation because we will see his hands and his feet and his side and we will see that in those places he still bears the marks of his suffering and his disgrace. That which was his greatest pain and greatest sorrow will remain with him in glory. Those scars will not be a perpetual reminder to him of his agony and disgrace, but of the faithfulness of God on his behalf for his people. Brothers and sisters, you may be suffering this morning. And whether God will relieve that suffering in this life or not, I don't know. I hope that he will. But come back to the edge of time with me and strain your ear and you will hear this. The Christ will suffer. It has always been so. But I take Christ's scars to mean that all of us will carry the marks of our suffering into the resurrection. And as we bear the scars, we shall tell the stories of the faithfulness of God. And in that day, we shall raise a cup to the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we come to this table. Upon it is a cup And there we're reminded of the blood of the covenant poured out for us. We were reminded that Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. We were reminded that he condemned himself and sent himself to death. But we also have bread. And that bread reminds us of the broken body of Jesus. It takes an awful lot of suffering to break a human body. But he endured it to the end and was broken. But it also reminds us that he told us to eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. So far from being a meal of sorrow, this is a meal of the anticipation of the greatest joy we shall ever know. So, brothers and sisters, come and welcome Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I suppose I'm in awe at this moment as we have settled in and witnessed these acts of our Lord, all I can ask you is that you will grant us the grace to know it, to to find that in our hearts and from our guts that we have songs of thanksgiving rising to our lips. Help us to receive this gift and to give you thanks for it.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a table for God's people. And if you are among them, naming the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior for the atonement of your sins, then you are most welcome to this table. Come.